Hello and welcome to the Perusia podcast. I'm Shabal Reish, your host, and I've got a special co-host, Matthew Tag. Um, and the reason for Matthew Tag has been appearing as guests in the past, but he's also going to pop up time to time as a co-host. And, and today um, is a special show as he is a huge fan himself, a, a long follower of these guys, the Liturgical um, Institute uh members and we look they're better known as the liturgy or what is it the liturgy guys based on their podcast and so today um this is part two of a series last time mark griffin uh was in in the podcast and we had jesse um and now we've got jesse again but this time with uh dr dennis mcnamara who's from benedictine college um so very excited about today so i will want to welcome our guest uh welcome back uh, jesse it's good to be here it's good to be back I think uh, only two liturgy guys can be on the same show at once, so we made sure to uh, fraction it out. Yes, yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, spread it out, and you guys are doing a great job, and it's great to have you on this show uh, today, Dennis. Thanks for joining us. Hey, my pleasure. Happy and love the, so w- w- love the background, um, and w- can you explain wh- where are you at the moment in the States? I am in northeastern Kansas, so right on the Missouri River, which is the longest river in the United States. I found out once I moved here. It's not the Mississippi, in case anybody's wondering. And uh, it's Benedictine College, which was founded in 1858, which by Kansas standards is a very long time ago, and has in the last 20 years or so had a huge renaissance, uh, restoring its Catholic identity, quadrupled its student enrollment, built new buildings, started new programs, and then I was asked this year to start something called the Center for Beauty and Culture and uh, relocated from the Liturgical Institute about a year ago. Wow. Wow. Okay. Praise God. So, and um, and Jesse, you are in uh, Mundelein, is that correct? Yep. I am in Mundelein, and uh, my background is part of our beautiful 1,000-acre campus here in Mundelein, Illinois. Wow. Beautiful spot. Very excited about today's show. Matthew, do you want to um, maybe touch on where we were last time and then where are we going today? Definitely. Well, well last time we definitely talked liturgy, but uh, we started off by finding out a little bit about who Jesse Weiler is and how he came to be the uh, beating heart of the liturgy guys. And we also found out who Chris Carstens is. But today we need to find out who this Dr. Dennis McNamara is. So, Dennis, would you like to tell us a little bit about your past and how you came to be a part of the Liturgy Guys? Well, uh, about 20 years ago, I finished my PhD in architectural history at the University of Virginia. And it was always a lifelong Catholic, but never really connected Catholicism and the study of architecture. And through God's providence, was asked to help found the Liturgical Institute by its first um, founding director, Monsignor Francis Bennion. And I could not have defined the word liturgy at that time if I, if I had to save my life. Uh, but after teaching for 20 years, taking a number of classes there, graduate level classes in theology, started to merge together my architectural background and liturgy and theology background. And then when we hired Jesse a few years ago, he had this brainstorming idea for a podcast and the Liturgy Guys was born and it's uh, just finished its fourth season. It seems to be a, a bit of a, a common theme that uh, the three liturgy guys uh, once knew absolutely nothing about liturgy. <laughs> Jesse admitted that himself last week when he first started. Um, uh, Chris Carstens was, in fact, the first graduate, technically, of mm-hmm. the Liturgical Institute. And now, Dennis, you're admitting the same thing. Uh, do you think this is a, a commonplace for most people? that uh, when they first start out, they, they actually know very little about liturgy. 
Well, I often think that uh, people never let their opinions about liturgy get in the way of their understanding of liturgy. And so uh, sometimes you just have an opinion and you know something about liturgy and you think you know and you don't. But I think what God's doing in us and in a lot of people now is he's raising up believers to become academics rather than academics who may or may not be believers. And so what you find out when I tell people is I study liturgy as a Christian, not as a, an academic. And that's, that's a different thing. And so you believe and then you come to know. And that's, I think, one of the reasons we're all excited is because we believed first, and then we've put words to what our heart and the Holy Spirit was telling us. Mm, that's awesome. Really good. And it, it may seem very strange uh, to most of us and to anyone who's first starting out listening to the liturgy guides that an architect is uh, talking to us about liturgy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess I'm asking you to defend yourself, Dr. McNamara. <laughs> well, happy to architect do it. doing talking to us about liturgy. Well, one thing that remained in my mind is there's a treatise, the only treatise to survive on architecture from the ancient world is called De Architectura on Architecture by Vitruvius. It's about 30 BC. And in the first chapter of his book, he says, In architecture, but in all things, there are the things that are signified and the things that signify. In other words, you can make a building that speaks of the grandeur of ancient Rome. You can make a building that tells you about the nature of a temple and the worship of a god versus a house versus a market. So in other words, there's this invisible idea called worship or the state or the political life. That's the thing signified, the idea. But then there are signifiers, buildings, materials, a hierarchy. And I read that and I said, this guy's 30 BC. He's not a Christian, but he basically just defined a sacrament, right? Things that are signified, invisible realities, things that signify matter. And so it was an easy hop from this kind of um, theological and philosophical understanding of architecture into the foundational liturgical sacramental system of the church. Wow. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated. Many people, um, this was a way of, of, of our church's history. It was through architecture that really did evangelize, didn't it? Back in, in those, in those early days. And, and the importance of the structure of a building and, and what it looked not only on the outside, on the inside. Um, and it wasn't always um, the case where uh, p- people would just uh, whip, whip them up like they are today and, and just put four walls and a roof. It's, it's, it's really a, a lifelong uh, mission. Could you explain a little bit about, I guess, um, how important the church building was, especially uh, in those early years? Well, you know, there are some early documents from the fourth century speaking about how the churches in Rome were ornamented on their front porches along the streets so that people would be fascinated by the columns and then they might come inside. But even before that, they understood biblically that architecture is a big thing in in the Bible. You might not think of it, but Christ is compared to the temple, right? His body is explicitly compared to a building. The building is made of many members or lots of stones. So the apostles are are, um, admiring all the stones. And then he says, well, they're talking about the temple of his body. Well, you think about your own body made of many members, the mystical body of Christ made of many members, then a church building made of many members. You have the Ark of Noah, you have um, the heavenly Jerusalem, which is compared to this great city. So buildings uh, are, are very much a biblical thing. Columns are a biblical thing. And so when the early Christians figured this out and finally had the time to, and the money and the freedom to build big churches, they weren't just saying, hey, let's make a pretty thing. They were saying, let's continue this biblical tradition of architecture now that we have the full revelation of Jesus Christ. And that, I think, is something we've forgotten now. We think church architecture should be pious or old-fashioned or traditional, and we often forget that it's a sacramental thing 
a deeply biblical thing and actually part of the rite itself. Fantastic point. That's awesome. Um, so what was the, messy, when, yeah. when did we first start building churches? Uh, we, we read particularly uh, in church history that uh, our, our liturgy used to be held on uh, in catacombs and in secret places. So mm-hmm. um, when did that change and, and how did the church building first come about? Well, it's hard to know exactly. Those first centuries of the church, you know, are very mysterious in many ways. The earliest full descriptions of churches we have come from the very early fourth century. You know, Constantine, the emperor of Roman Empire, he more or less converts to Christianity. And as soon as he does, he sends his mom to the Holy Land and they build a church of the Holy Sepulchre. They build churches all around Rome. And there's a few um, documents from the early period that talk about the Constantinian churches being even better than the ones that had been built before. So there's just little hints that there were some churches, you know, the different emperors were tearing them down or allowing them to be built and they would come and go. And there's a lot of talk about the house churches and people would worship in their homes because they had to, it's just, you know, secret place. But we're talking about the homes of very wealthy people. So you have to think of a really large room in a great, you know, mansion, (laughs) take that in the Roman context and say, that's what they turned into a chapel. There's kind of a false notion that liturgy is really domestic and it's the dining room table of the modern suburban house, but that's really not the earliest notions of church architecture. And when the writers are talking about this in the fourth century, um, they say the bishop who built this church in Tyre, which is a city in the Eastern Mediterranean, they called him the new Solomon. They was basically building the new temple. Uh, but now it was the church. They called him the new Bezalel, the new um, Zerubbabel. These were the two rebuilders of the temple and the tabernacle of Moses. And so they had a deep sense that Old Testament biblical buildings were now being completed in this great time of freedom that Constantine had brought along. And they were really pleased by that. And so even if they weren't able to build, they could not have invented this theology on day one. They had rites of dedication. They had bishops' investments, all described in the early fourth century. And they didn't just make that up in the year 310, they had a long-standing tradition that finally could could flower. That's a great point. Um, the idea there, um, you mentioned Solomon's Temple, and I, I just imagine uh, we build um, a lot of our, obviously, theology from the Old Testament, and what would be, uh, I mean, how much symbolism are we talking about here back in the Temple? I know that was such a central point for the Jew, Jewish people. Mm-hmm. And all the all the sacrifices had to happen there in the Old Testament. Even it got destroyed, then they had to rebuild it again, um, and then destroy it again. But uh, what um, what what connections do we have today in, in churches today that link still to to that? What what have we sort of um, understood from from the Jewish uh, temple? Well, it's very straightforward relationship. If you imagine the temple of the time of Christ, there's a big Temple Mount with lots of buildings and big columns and everything, but the temple proper was in the middle of it. And if you think of it like a long shoebox, there was a small part in the front called the porch. It had two hollow bronze columns. And there was a big room inside. It was called the um, holy place and the, or the hekal in Hebrew. And then the holy of holies was a little cubic room in the back that had the veil, this great curtain that separated the holy of holies. And that in the holy of holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And God, that was God's throne. So God's glory was staying with his people, resting on this golden box with two angels on each side. And then it was blocked by these, the veil, this great curtain. So the theology was that heaven was the little room in the back, the Holy of Holies where God dwelled. The earth was this building, the big room on the outside. And then heaven and earth were separated by the veil. Now, anybody who's attentive to scripture knows what happens to the veil when Christ dies on the cross, right? It's torn from top to bottom. 
In other words, heaven destroys the separation between heaven and earth, and the people of earth have access to the face of God by looking into the Holy of Holies. Things of heaven can now flood into the earth and glorify it. So when you go to a well-designed Catholic church, think of the nave not just as this place where people sit, but think of that as the new earth. Think of the sanctuary as the new heaven. Think of the altar as Christ standing amidst his people, as the books say. And then the priest is sacrament of Christ who comes to earth, goes to the Father with the prayers and petitions of the new Israel, which is the church, and then brings the blessings and the real presence back in the Eucharist. And so a building is this microcosmic version of this interplay, this love song, this kiss between heaven and earth. And they kiss right at the spot of the altar rail or the sanctuary step. And that all comes from the Jewish tradition, but now it's not by way of foreshadowing. Now it's by way of sacramental participation in the real things of heaven. Wow, love that. That's so deep. <laughs> There's so much we can unpack there, Matthew, but now we've got the whole show to, to do this. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. Uh, last week, gentlemen, we, we talked a, a fair bit about um, the, the fact that uh, all three of you uh, get on very, very well um, and that you're all very passionate uh, about uh, liturgy and imparting that knowledge uh, to, to others. Um, and so, uh, Jesse, uh, could you talk to us a little bit about um, what what you've personally learned, the, the exciting things that you've learned from from Dennis whilst uh, whilst on the show? Uh, well, everything he just said, he took from me, so I think that should be said first. Um, no, I, I, you know, we we had a lot of projects that we wanted to work on. One of the projects that we wanted to do is talk about other different churches in the area. And we had this idea to do this series called Formed in Fashion, which in the rite of dedication for a church, there's this line in there that says we are uh, formed in fashion by the Savior Mason's hammer. And so this idea that we are all living stones, learning all of that from Dennis is, is such an amazing thing because everybody wants to believe when they see a Catholic church that they can say, oh, you know, that's that's a beautiful church. But it's a whole nother thing to be able to explain why that's a beautiful church and to be able to be given that language that I never had before, you know, ontology, eschatology, to be able to explain all of that has been remarkably amazing. And then in terms of, you know, gaining some things from Chris, he is an expert at application, practical application. And there is nobody, I think you could find no other uh, liturgiologist, somebody who studies the liturgy and, and imparts it, uh, it, that is as impartial as he is, he really understands the church's vision, the church's uh, hermeneutic when studying these things, and his answers are, are quite profound whenever you ask him about things. And so just being able to understand and process, I think getting that information from them. But I would have to say the number one thing that has kind of encapsulated my entire experience is the understanding of the importance of music in the liturgy. Again, just like with the church building, I always thought music was inherently beautiful. It's also very moving and it can be emotive, but I had no idea how much of an emphasis that the church puts on music specifically in the liturgy. Mm. I'm very glad you mentioned music, um, perhaps a bit uh, bit afraid. Um, so, uh, Dennis, mm -hmm. you're the man who does the Liturgical Institute short course on music. So if both of you have your boxing gloves ready, perhaps we could <laughs> talk a little bit about uh, music in the liturgy. Sure. 
Well, you know, the uh, I grew up in a regular suburban parish, and they sang a song at the beginning, song in the middle, song at the end, and that's all I ever knew. I didn't even know that the church had another vision. And then I learned a lot from uh, Adam Bartlett, who's this great composer of chant and the founder of Luminary Publications, and he taught a class that walked us through all the church's documents. And when you read them and you say, oh, there's this deep sacramental meaning for music that starts with the love song of the Trinity. The Father and the Son speak to each other, but just saying, hey, Dad, I'm your son. You know, thanks for begetting me. It's not very exciting, right? When a lover loves, a lover sings. And so singing is elevated speech. It's the speech that combines the cry of the heart and the regularity of the intellect and the deep desire for unity. And it's what happens when you love. And so the idea that the church, people of the church, together with their priests, form this image of the mystical body of Christ, and they're singing this love song to the Father. And then when the priest turns around and sings the word of Christ to the people in the pews, it's not just fussy, operatic, you know, highbrow stuff. It's the very nature of the liturgy itself. And so some music is liturgical, right? It's the actual texts of the Mass. It's the Kyrie, the Creed, the sign of the cross. Every word of the Mass is meant to be sung. And then there are other songs that are pious, devotional, emotional. They're about us speaking to God. And that's what I call devotional singing. And it's a really important distinction because liturgical singing is the text of the liturgy itself. The words are in the Missal. Devotional singing is some other pious song about Jesus you know, we are called, we are chosen, we are Christ for one another is one they sing over here. And it's all true, right? We're called, we're chosen, we're Christ for one another in the sacramental sense. But those are not the words of the Mass. And so what we tend to do is dump devotional music on the liturgy in place of the actual liturgical music that the church asks of us. And these are usually known as what are called propers. So there's something called an entrance antiphon, a communion antiphon, and sometimes an offertory antiphon. And these are texts given by the church. They're actually in the Missal. And when you look at the one for Christmas, for instance, the entrance antiphon is very profound. It's like the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Um, and then you could just sing A Little Town of Bethlehem, you know, which is a cute song about a snowy town in Israel. But boy, isn't it much more important to say the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so we tend to hang around on the cotton candy side of music a lot rather than actually asking what the church, uh, doing what the church asks us to do. And I understand there's, there's even an order to which we should be singing in the Mass, like we should be singing certain things first, then other things, and then third things. Would you tell us a bit about that? Sure. It's very surprising. It was surprising to me when I read it. But right after Vatican II, so the 19, late 1960s, the instru instruction on music in the liturgy is called Musicum Sacrum. So it's the instruction on the implementation of Vatican II. So we're not going pre-Vatican II at all. We're, this is what Rome said Vatican II meant. And there were three degrees of singing. So if you were going to sing, they gave you first, second, and third degree for the things that should be sung if you couldn't do everything. So it's always the standard that everything is meant to be sung. The Mass is a sung prayer from beginning to end. And then what they recommended in the first degree was anything that was a dialogue, anything where the people were invited to answer the priest. So that includes things like the sign of the cross, which you don't think of as a dialogue, but the people answer amen. That includes the introduction and the concluding of readings, right? So the word of the Lord, thanks be to God, that kind of thing. So anytime the, the people answer the priest, that was meant to be sung. And the idea is that the priest, who's the head of the mystical body, wants to invite the members of that mystical body to do what he's doing. So specifically things when he says, pray, brethren, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God, the Almighty Father, what he's saying is, I need your help. You know, I'm going to look at the face of God here in the sanctuary, and that that's scary stuff if you don't do it right. So please pray that the sacrifice may be 
uh, offered uh, worldly, that's a love song between the priests and the people. And so anything that's a dialogue is first. And then things of second degree would be other things you wouldn't really expect at first. Um, like the, um, actually, what is it? Yeah, like the, or, the ordinary, the mass. So Kyrie, Gloria, Creed. And then other things would be changeable parts. So things that are different every time. So the things the church understands, people can't always sing the music that's new every week, but they can sing Amen. They can sing uh, the Creed because you've done it every week. And then the things that change every week, like the, the propers, are on the third degree. But third degree doesn't mean unimportant. It just means if you can't do it all, you should at least start here with the dialogues. Wow. And I'm willing to bet that some of our listeners have never heard that before. Because uh -huh. the first time I heard it on the podcast, uh, likewise, I was, I was blown away. Wow, that's what we're supposed to be doing. Yep. Where do you think it all went wrong? Well, there's a lot of theories about that, but some people argue, and I find this a very compelling argument, that the old low mass mentality from before the council became the normative Vatican II mentality. So for people who don't know what the low mass was, there were two sort of versions of mass before the council. There was high mass and low mass. And high mass was sung. It was audible. The people sometimes uh, replied later in the 50s. And it would required a deacon and a subdeacon and a scola. And they sang all the propers, and it was all sung and rather complex, beautiful incense. Uh, then that was very hard to do every day, especially if you're a priest on your own on a weekday. So they, something was developed called the low mass, where it was not spoken out loud. There was no singing. The people didn't respond. And it was basically the priest sort of gliding around, whispering. And um, later they got permission, Pius XII, I believe, gave permission for people to sing hymns at the low mass because... At least they could do something, right? If they couldn't sing the, the complicated chant, at least they could sing a pious song at the beginning, the middle, and the end. And But though he said that was an accommodation to the situation in which people were not uh, participating uh, in song. And it was not meant to be the norm. But nonetheless, it became the norm for most people. I think even today, pious Catholics will say, well, give me three good old-fashioned hymns and I'm doing music the right way. That was always the exception. That was not the norm. And so what do we start doing after the council? Three pious hymns <laughs> in the middle, beginning, and the end. And we think that's liturgical singing. And people forgot completely that there were proper texts, that they're intuits, that the chant is what Vatican II recommended. And so the most Vatican II people are actually doing the pre-Vatican II thing, which was an exception wow. and uh, not the norm, even that at that time. There's an irony there, isn't there? There, there certainly is. So what... It, so we, we're supposed to sing the, the texts of the Mass first mm -hmm. and, and foremost, and, and then when it comes to putting a hymn in, can we just choose any old devotional hymn, or does that hymn need to be special in some way? Well, there are options. Hymns are legal, if, even if they're not the first preferred option of the church. So the way it goes is the first option is something called the Graduale Romanum. It's a very complex book of Latin chant, very difficult, they even knew at the time that that would only be for very big churches, basilicas, cathedrals. So after the council, they made a slightly simpler book called the Graduale Simplex. Still in Latin, but easier notes to sing. So that's the second option. So it's always, if you, you should do the best. If you can't do the best, do the second best. If you can't do that, well, the third best is some other setting of those proper texts. That's the, the mass settings for the day, the proper text for the day. It could be in English, could be simpler, be proved by the bishops. The fourth option is... It actually says some other liturgical song. 
The American bishops translated it as some other liturgical chant, because the word is cantus in Latin, that could be either chant or song, depending how you translate it. But those songs, even if they're hymns, are meant to be appropriate to the feast, to the day, to the reading of the gospel. And that's what propers do. They're called proper because they're proper to the day. So on Easter, you read the account of the resurrection. It's proper to that feast. You wouldn't just do other some other Christmas reading on Easter because it doesn't make any sense. And yet we just pick random hymns just because we like them or because they're the ones the music director knows that don't correspond. The whole point of singing, especially at the beginning, and there's no such thing as a closing hymn, by the way, in the Missal. Uh, that's a complete kind of invention. Um, is that it's supposed to warm up your brain. I call it the liturgical coffee. So it's Sunday morning and the, the choir starts singing some hymn that's about a doctor of the church. You know, uh, in the midst of the church, he opened his mouth and spoke with great wisdom and understanding. You don't even know who the feast is yet because the priest hasn't announced it. The prayers haven't asked it. But already you hear the song. Oh, if you do it enough. Oh, that's the comment of doctors. That's the comment of virgins. That's the comment of martyrs. And so already you know what's going on that day. And the whole point of that is to get your brain ready to enter into the mystery of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ as it's lived out in this particular feast, this particular saint, this particular part of the liturgical year. And to just pick any old song kind of gets in the way of that. And it doesn't serve the people and it doesn't help them quite as much in their path to holiness. So it can be, there's two ways to look at this. One is uh, those fussy liturgy guys, all rule obsessed and looking at the law all the time. The other is the church is meant to nourish the people of God and she's worked out a really good system to do that. And we should do it as fully as we can. Excellent. So yeah, our listeners might want to go and check out some liturgical documents on music and Mm -hmm. uh, start listening to the liturgy guys because of course I've learned all this from the liturgy guys myself. Uh, But Jesse... Um, it sounds like you actually do the podcast with a couple of liturgy nerds. Was it difficult <laughs> choosing the title over Guys versus Nerds? <laughs> I, you know, I don't know why we chose Guys versus Nerds, um, but probably why. just interchangeable. Interchange, I like it. Yes, yeah. Because uh, let's face it, uh, Dr. McNamara uh, sometimes goes a little too far, doesn't he? I believe that there is a clerk somewhere on campus that took a lot of time to put up because someone got very fussy over type font. Is that correct? That sounds uh, very accurate and possible. (laughs) Let's not say fussy. Let's say (laughs) in every field of every endeavor, especially in the arts, there are the best ways to pay attention to detail. And letter spacing has been developed over 2,000 years, just like liturgical things. And to just throw up letter spacing is uh, sloppily is not good. And Dennis likes the graduale romanum of letter spacing. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> Excellent. Talk Excellent. to any typographer and they'll tell you there's an art to that too. Well, I, I look forward uh, I look forward to that book, Dr. McNamara, that, uh, that you're clearly going to, to write in the future. And uh, speaking of books, you have a book, don't you? A couple of them, actually, yep. Oh, wonderful. Uh, I'm thinking specifically of your book on Catholic Church architecture. Would you tell us a little about it? Well, the most recent one is called Catholic Church Architecture and the Spirit of the Liturgy. And I stole the second half of that title from Pope Benedict, who stole it from Romano Guardini, who stole it from somebody else. Um, And so I figured there was a a nice tradition of uh, title theft. But what I wanted to do there was integrate 
the understanding of architecture beyond what it's been in the last couple of centuries, which is sort of like the church is the meeting house of God. It's a living room where God meets his people around this sort of, you know, domestic, intimate sphere, break bread together on our knees kind of thing. And to say, all right, there is a deep sacramentality to architecture that's biblical, that's sacramental, that incorporates the entire tradition of, in the West especially, of the, the ancient world, and um, that it's still relevant for our time and place. So it was a great learning experience for me to figure that out because I had an intuition. But you can't just write a book on intuition. You have to write a book with footnotes and documents and sources. And God be praised, I found all that evidence in the living tradition and in the documents of the church. Fantastic. Where can you get that book at the moment? Where? Well, uh, it's easy to find on Amazon if you uh, have access to that. The uh, mother company is called Liturgy Training Publications, so you can also get it at ltp.org. But it's not really a bookstore book. It's more of a uh, special order book. We'll have to make sure we, we, we make it available, Matthew, in Australia. We're yeah, we're, we're, working, we're working with Jesse and Liturgy Training Publications at the moment to try and get them at, at a more, more affordable rate here in Australia, which, uh, which is great news. Um, do you want to tell us, Jesse, a little bit about liturgical training publications? Sure. Uh, when uh, the Liturgical Institute was started, like Dennis said, uh, a little over 20 years ago, it was a special project to put out literature and academic literature that was appropriate in sacramental theology that didn't really exist before. And so we cooperated with a printing press in Chicago called Liturgy Training Publications, also known, uh, also owned by the Archdiocese of Chicago. And so through that imprint, uh, which is called Hillenbrand Books, we have published, um, you know, dozens of really great books on a myriad of topics anywhere, uh, obviously from architecture to music to uh, each individual sacrament and, and so on and so forth. Excellent. Now, you've mentioned coffee once already, Dr. McNamara, which mm -hmm. is fantastic news because you are talking to a fellow coffee addict here. Mm -hmm. uh, now, Charbel tells me that uh, the coffee in the States is, is not as good. So, uh, I'm sorry to say. I'm very sorry to say. So I... I think we definitely have to get you out to Australia uh, <laughs> only just to, to have a decent cup of coffee. Um, and last week we, we talked about the fourth Liturgy Guy and the, the, the spin-off of the Liturgy Guys, Liturgy and Donuts. And uh, I mentioned that there were two spin-offs, in fact. Would you gentlemen tell us about Coffee Talk? Oh, yeah. Well, that was a day when I had a whole bunch of coffee and I came into Jesse's <laughs> office and I was hyper. It's like, Jesse, my mind is racing. I've got a lot of things to say. I don't know what I'm going to say. Just put me in front of a microphone and ask me questions. And it was just like, boom, 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 boom. And it was so fun and it worked out so well. And we didn't have any topic. You know, Chris was gone. It was the end of the season and we just were going to do a little bonus episode that we just decided to call it Coffee Talk. And uh, then it existed as just, you know, supplemental to the liturgy guys, but all related. And then we had this uh, person do a wonderful intro for us and won a free t-shirt for it. And uh, it's just turned out to be a lot of fun, a little more relaxed, not any particular topic. Jesse's a great interviewer. I found that out after uh, doing those coffee talks that I sounded really smart because he, he asked the right questions. <laughs> and those uh, those caffeination highs that he gets do have an expiration date. So <laughs> you have to maximize. I'd be right in the middle of a project and I'd be like, all right, let's let's go. We got to get this done now because uh, we don't want to waste this genius. <laughs> Excellent. Do you then also have to put up with the crash? 
Yes. <laughs> no. No. All right. Perhaps I better not, better not ask about that. We, we don't want to destroy the magic. So <laughs> the coffee talk is definitely uh, a lot of, of fun. How do um, um, people connect with all this? So we've got the Liturgy Guys podcast. Uh, right now in our comments below on the Perusia page, we're putting in the, um, the links for those in Australia to link. Um, um, just so Litur liturgical institute liturgy guys what else we, we should i just go to the liturgical institute um main you can go there you'll find everything you'll find the Hillenbrand books you'll find uh, i i would argue the most important part of what we do is our degree program uh you know graduate level degree uh, can you tell in, us about in, that as well absolutely uh so we have four degrees and uh, we we have professional degrees, degrees, but then we also degrees that help uh, formate those who will be teaching in seminary or any other university capacity. And the whole goal here, uh, we started as a degree program uh, because Cardinal Francis George wanted a place to properly train uh, those who would be training those in liturgy. And uh, and so since then, we've done remarkable work. A hundred percent of our graduates have worked in the field of liturgy and are, and are employed. Uh, wow. thusly, which is a really great thing. We have over 100 graduates now. Uh, but then kind of when I got here, I wanted to extrapolate from our curriculum to create the podcast, create um, uh, this other video series that we have called Elements of the Catholic Mass. Uh, we, we now have the short courses, uh, you know, online certificate program, where we kind of have different sections of our curriculum there. And the whole goal being that I want to help educate people at whatever level they're ready to be educated or catechized in liturgy, whether you want the graduate degree or whether you want to just casually listen to a podcast on the weekend. So uh, we want to make sure that all of that's made available. I highly recommend it. And I, I think, uh, Matthew, we're, we're going to have to work closely here and and see what we can do as we prepare for our Perusia Academy. We want to dovetail people into going deeper in the liturgy. I have to admit, and um, when you first hear the word liturgy, and I remember when Matthew said how excited he was about the liturgy, guys, and I was thinking it's a topic that doesn't sound exciting for the general the general uh, Catholic or audience when you just say, oh, lit liturgical um, institute. Okay, that's going to be for probably priests or bishops or or those who are going to be involved in um, in choir or, or something like that. And so you, you sort of distance yourself as a, as a layman. But then once hearing a little bit about the reasons behind the liturgy, that there's a meaning behind everything, um, the, the, to the vestments, the colours, the seasons, what we see every day, um, all these things, the readings chosen, it, it's it's phenomenal over centuries how this has developed and, and how deep it actually is. It, I can see why you guys are so excited about it because I'm becoming excited about it and I think it needs to be a big part of our faith and our formation. And if I could ask this, what happened to your personal faith when discovering the symbolism of the liturgy? How does that impact you personally, your relationship with God? How has that gone to a whole new level? Uh, both, uh, maybe one each, uh, some, maybe. Sure, uh, I'll, I'll start here. Uh, I, I would say it changed everything. I, I really feel like a switch has been flipped. And okay. of course, we talked, we've talked about this. We talked about it with Chris, but the catechism says the two ends of the mass are the glorification of God and the sancti sanctification of man, mankind. And I always thought I pretty much understood the first part of that. But that second part was the one that eluded me to understand that I am I am called to be deified, to be transfigured through the sacraments, through the sacred liturgy, 
that's something I never thought I really had access to. I was just kind of, I thought I would go to mass and receive Christ as kind of a, you know, Dennis says, a spiritual vitamin pill. And then I kind of go on my way. But being able to connect that process is, is this process of deification, but also sanctification of mankind. This idea that by me attending mass and by offering myself and those around me, not only sanctifies myself, but it sanctifies everybody. And so in, in a world where there's often lots of hurt and hate and evil, uh, especially now we have this global pandemic, there's lots of people really worried about things. And of course, the number one thing people say about their disbelief of God is, if God loves us, and if there is a God, then why do bad things happen? That's another question. But the answer to solving that is the sacred liturgy. I truly believe that, that that's that's what heals everything and sanctifies everything. Wow. Well, um, uh, Dennis, would you like to comment your personal uh, faith um, out of out of learning the liturgy and, and deepening your faith? Yeah, sure. Well, when you grow up in a pious Catholic home, you go to Mass on Sunday and there's sort of a sense of obligation and you're interested in your mortal sins and venial sins and confession and going to communion and not going to communion, all those sorts of things. And, and that's okay. It's, there's a sort of first level naivete or first level child like trust in that. But then when you learn more, you say, okay, God is not just an angry sort of figure in the sky marking off my demerits. He's goodness itself. He's love itself. The good is diffusive of itself. He sent his son to rescue us. And the process of that rescuing is to be united to the same sacrifice that his son Christ makes. And as a member of that body, we were talking about architecture before and buildings being made of many members. Think of all the people in church as members of that body. That entire body is being given to the Father out of love. And you say, Father, I give myself to you. You know, I can't save myself. I can't heal myself. I surrender to you so that you can put me through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And the resurrection, as Jesse was saying about deification, means becoming like God, becoming both human and divine, as Christ was. Who He was divine first and human second. We're human first and meant to become divine. And the liturgy is the is the workout of that place. I, I compare liturgy to, um, you know, working out in the gym a lot because people will go to the gym or learn golf and they'll get instructors with like get just the right grip and just the right putter. And then they have to do, you know, this angle and not that angle. And they think, oh, excellence in golf requires quite specific instruction, knowledge, understanding, and a lot of doing so that I can become a golfer or I can become a bodybuilder. If you want to become holy, then you do what it takes to become holy is offer yourself to God as Christ. And the way that the God has guaranteed the efficacy of that is in the liturgical life of the church. And it's answered everything. War, famine, hunger, disease, uh, hatred, racism. If you're transformed into Christ, then you're not going to be someone who hates your neighbor or ignores the poor and also grows in love for everybody, which is a happy way to be. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, Matthew. Yeah, we we now need to talk about, uh, uh, Dennis, your, your current activities out mm -hmm. in Kansas. But before we do that, I think there is a word that we need to talk about. It's a word high I crust. heard. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yes, <laughs> high crust, yes. Uh, this, this word I hadn't even heard before I started listening to the liturgy, guys. Uh, but you um, have imparted upon me this word that has become now my favorite word. Ontology. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> your, it, it appears to be your favorite word and it has become mine. So would you tell us a little bit 
about ontology. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Jesse made a rap that included the word ontology. It's hard to believe. But um, I heard this word from Professor David Fagerberg, who teaches at Notre Dame now. And it was a course that he was teaching on beauty. And he, he kind of opened up some of what Thomas Aquinas and some of the other classical thinkers on beauty um, described that beauty was, what we call beauty is when a thing reveals its inner nature. And it comes from the Greek word antos, which means being. So, you know, if I painted a portrait of Jesse and it looked like Matthew, you would say, well, it's a nice portrait, but it's not a very beautiful rendition of uh, Jesse because it doesn't look like Jesse, right? So the Jesse-ness is not coming through. And why this was so important is because if a human being is not understood as human and having human rights and dignity, then you can oppress people, right? Because you can treat them like subordinate creatures. If a child in the womb is not understood as a person, then you can have an abortion or not. If marriage is not between a man and a woman, then you can do whatever you want, right? So you have to have foundational definitions that grow out of the nature of things. And if you don't know the nature of things, then you don't know what to do. And so ontology, I kept seeing in the center of everything all the time. If you worship God and he's a trinity, well, you worship in a Trinitarian way. Well, okay. Well, if you don't know the ontology of God, then you can't do that. And so it's just the foundational move. And it's it's a poke in the eye to modern culture. And I, I know that um, because people won't say, well, there's how do we know? How do we know the foundational inner essence of the being of things? It's all my subjective perception. And when you go down that slippery slope, then everything falls apart. So I always want to call people back. What's the nature of the thing itself? And when you know what it is, then you know what to do. Excellent. And this this word being related to, to beauty is, uh, is has actually become the, the focus of your current work. So how how has Mundelein's loss become Benedictine's gain? <laughs> well, as I mentioned before, Benedictine. Or maybe is, it is a gain for Mundelein that he's <laughs> it's a gain for Jesse's daily know. life. Yeah. <laughs> um, as you know, I was talking about the college here. Had twenty years ago this strategic plan, as a lot of places do. You know, their enrollment was declining. They were a small regional college in a rather obscure place. And the numbers were going down. And they had this kind of, how do we rescue this place meeting? And they developed a vision based on John Paul II's uh, Ex Gordia Ecclesia, his document on what a university, Catholic university is. And particularly the president, current president, uh, Dr. Stephen Minnis, said, this is our model for the university. And that's what happened. And the people started coming. Student numbers started going up. Then there weren't enough dorms. And they had to hire professors. And then they had more students. They had more professors. And it's grown. And it's become like this youthful organization, institution, even though it's old by Kansas standards. And after that plan was considered successful, they said, okay, well, we're not really going to get a lot bigger as a college. And a lot of people aren't going to come to Northeastern Kansas. What do we need to do? And so we're going to turn our focus outward. And they called it Transforming Culture in America project. Rather daunting idea, right? So how would they do this? One of the ways was to start these things called centers. So right now we have one called Center for Constitutional Liberty because they realize that people are forgetting the U.S. Constitution founding principles. There's another one on business ethics. So how can you bring the Catholic social teaching to the world of business? And then the third one that I've been asked to start is beauty and culture. And we've forgotten what beauty is. We think of beauty as just the whatever our feelings tell us. And culture has kind of decayed because nobody can tell anybody that anything is better or worse. And so what they saw the need was to really define those words, to figure out what that was about, to bring some of that knowledge on campus to teach the students so they could go out and transform the world and then do other things like continue the podcast, working on some videos now on the nature of beauty and and the artists. 
and uh, public lectures and, and different events. So that's that's what the center does, or will soon be doing. Because <laughs> it's very new, isn't it? It's not yet a year old. And when you come here and you have to teach and then start a center is sort of the fourth thing on your list. You take a while and you think about it and you talk to people. So I've drawn up kind of my um, founding document for the center now and the powers that be are are mulling it over. It's, it's not even on the Benedictine College website yet, but hopefully it will be soon. So what, what is your hopes? What is your hope as far as the mission of the Center for Beauty and Culture is? Well, one thing I've learned is that if you say the same thing long enough, eventually people hear you. you know? <laughs> so I think they've done these studies that people have to see a TV commercial 16 times before they realize they've seen it. And then they suddenly want that product. And so ontology, sacrament, heavenly Jerusalem, church building as an image of the new heaven and the new earth, participation in the redeeming power of Christ, the nature of liturgy itself. What is beauty as the revelation of ontology? And then even more so, beauty as the attractive power of the truth. That's sort of, you know, John Paul and Pope Benedict talked about the via pulchritudinis, the way of beauty. And the reason that that's so important is because beauty is what makes the truth delightful. So I'll say beauty is to truth as delicious as to food. If you want someone to eat your food, it better be delicious. If you want someone to accept the truth of the faith you presented in a beautiful way, you can go around and wag your fingers at people and say, you sinner, cut that out or you're going to hell. Or you can say, let me introduce you to this beautiful way of life that will make you happy, fulfilled, will fill the empty places in your heart, will make you a joyous person, will spread the love of Christ to you so that you can spread it to others and you can be happy with God forever. They're both true, but one of them is a lot more appealing than the other. Hmm. Yeah. We seem to be talking about uh, beauty in relation to the mass a fair bit, to our liturgy. But uh, mm-hmm. I thought our, our churches and our liturgies were, were supposed to be um, uh, nobly simplistic. Doesn't that mean that our churches and our liturgy is supposed to be stripped of, uh, of all these uh, extra things and, and, and become more austere? Mm-hmm. So Jesse is smiling because you're pressing all my buttons with your trigger words there. you should have said that it was the build the church building was a skin for space, liturgical action yeah, or a space or yeah. or a space or an environment <laughs> that's right well i'll answer your question anyway so <laughs> if you actually read the council documents they do use the phrase noble simplicity about the rights the vestments and the ornaments so it says the rights the vestments and the ornaments should have a noble simplicity It does not say the art and architecture should have a noble simplicity. In fact, what it says about it, it should have a noble beauty. That's what it says about our sacred art. And so I like to joke that I bet people, you know, at a bar or something, I'll give you my 401k if you can find noble simplicity about architecture in Vatican II. And they all think they're right and they're not because it's not there. It's um, noble. But simplicity doesn't mean emptiness, right? So God is simple because he's unified whole, even though he's complex as you know, three parts and the persons of the Trinity, but then the all of creation that represents all the many facets. So in the Thomistic understanding, simplicity means you have the minimum number of parts to be what you are, nothing excessive and nothing nothing deficient. And so deficiency is often what we would associate with simplicity. I'll have an empty beige room for my church. That's actually not simplicity. That's deficiency. And you don't have enough. It's like saying to you, you know, if you you have two eyes, well, that's one too many, you know, one eye is fine. Well, then you wouldn't be a human, you'd be a cyclops, right? So you're not, that's actually deficiency of eyes. Or if you tell a bride she can't have her dress or her flowers or her veil, just because noble simplicity, no, because it's not, 
she's not a bride without the things that are necessary. If you tell her, as I like to say, she has to wear 17 veils and then she'll be more bride-ish, right? More a bride. It's like, no, one veil is enough if it's adequate. And so beauty is always that mean between extremes of deficiency and excess. And so that's where simplicity lies. Nothing excessive, but also nothing deficient. And then that's where ontology comes in again, because if you don't know what the thing is, you might slip into a kind of deficiency because you don't know what it's supposed to be to be the full version of itself. And it's, can you talk about those three aspects, you know, uh, integritas, claritas, and um, consonantia? Sure. I just graded a whole bunch of exams on that today. In fact, uh, Aquinas talks about the three constituent elements of, of beauty. For a thing to be beautiful, it has to be whole. So it has to have everything it needs to have. This is all, you know, well-known stuff. So if I don't have ears or a nose or a head, I'm a deficient person. And I, therefore, I can't reveal humanness. If you're going to have a bird or a dog or a building and it doesn't have all the parts that it's supposed to have, then it's not revealing what it is. And so remember, if beauty is the revelation of the nature of the thing, if it's deficient, it can't reveal it. The second one is proportionality. In Latin, it's a um, different word, but it, it just means that everything's in the right order. Everything's ordered to its proper end. All the parts are in the right place. And, you know, I could have a hand that's, you know, 10 feet long. Well, that's not really proportional to me and it's not revealing the nature of human beings. And then the last one is called claritas. That just means the power to reveal ontological reality. So you can have all your parts, you can have them in the right proportion, but if you don't have the power to reveal them, then it can't be known and therefore can't be beautiful. It sounds a little pointy-headed professor stuff, but when you actually think about it, okay, I'm going to make a pie crust and I don't use flour. Well, you, you give a pile of Crisco or butter to somebody, this, this isn't pie crust. It's not revealing pie crust nest to you. Or mass, but we're not going to use an altar. Well, it's a deficiency. It's a lack of wholeness. Or if that altar is flimsy, cardboard table instead of marble and dignified to the nature of the liturgy, it's not proportional to the liturgy. Or if it's two inches high, then it's not proportional to us. And so the whole idea is how does the reality of the thing, the knowledge of the ontology of the thing, which is the understanding of the mind of God, get communicated to us? And Thomas figured out that if you have these three things, that's the way that the reality gets um, transmitted through matter. And we call that beautiful. Now, the interesting next level of that is when a thing is beautiful, it reveals its inner, inner essence. Its inner essence is known in the mind of God. So you put that syllogism together and what do you get? Through matter, properly worked, we get access to the knowledge of the mind of God. Boom. How's that for a head exploding thing? And if you don't make it beautiful, if it doesn't reveal what it is, then you're not getting access to the understanding of the thing in the mind of God. And that's why it's important. And we love the mind of God because we have minds that hunger for the knowledge of God's own uh, intelligence. And that's why we delight in beautiful things and want more and more and more because our souls are made to know as God knows. Awesome. And awesome. Uh, this is, you know, if any of the listeners uh, have their interest peaked, you know, uh, ladies and gentlemen, there are, there are four seasons of the liturgy guys there there are hours and hours of of this gold that you can listen to time and time again i think i'm personally responsible for uh, at least half a dozen uh, downloads of each every episode uh, i just can't get enough and uh, you guys have have helped me on occasion to have one foot on the ground and one foot in heaven just through that increased knowledge uh, and and dennis uh i would i would love to hear you talk about how the college students at Benedictine are actually digesting this information because you've, you've yeah. taught at the graduate level, graduate mm -hmm. level, you know, master's program, 
but now you're teaching at the, the college level. Um, are, are they able to digest the information the same way? Absolutely. You know, when you go to a college that's intentionally Catholic and the people who come here self-select, they're well-educated in their faith for the most part. You teach us 2000 level, you know, sophomore, second year of college level. They, they know enough that you can just hand them this kind of stuff. And they, I mean, in fact, I just got a note today. I have it right here on my desk from someone this, this long oops, saying how much she appreciated this class and how it's changed her prayer. And now she's, you know, and offering herself as a sacrifice uh, with the headship of Christ and being transformed. You just, it makes your day, you know, just keeping a student awake is sort of the basic minimum for most professors. And then you find people ask you more. Can I talk to you after class? Can I tell you about my spiritual problems? Can I write you a thank you note? Um, you know, they're very proud here. The president of the college is very proud here that um, more people still are Catholic when they leave this college than any other college in the country. The average uh, university in the country, only 20% of people who come in with some Christian faith graduate still having that faith. And here the numbers are exactly reversed. And so it's a, it's a wonderful place to, to come. We'd love to have some students from Australia, actually, if they're uh, There's the invite. Yeah. That's, that's what you're saying is interesting because we had Dr. Edward Shree on the show about a month ago, and he talked about how, um, how wild the Benedictine College was years ago. Um, and then when they introduced focus and then the idea of the, the student body, and um, one of his students uh, is now a lecturer there. Is it Andrew Swafford? Dr. Andrew Swafford, is he? Yep, he's a good friend. He's over there. Please say hello to him for us. Uh, yeah. Yeah, he was a football player and a partier, and then he came here and had a conversion. Yeah. And then, you know, he's a big, as you can imagine, football player, American football player, big dude. Then he's out there, like, preaching it about you know, <laughs> chastity and all this stuff. And now he's a professor here. It's just an amazing thing. And he got his doctorate at Mundelein. So there's this Mundelein uh, Benedictine College connection. That and he's going to be on a bonus summer episode of the Liturgy Guys in a couple of weeks. Oh, excellent. Yep. Fantastic. Excellent. And of course, his wife, Sarah, we've had out to Australia to, to right. tour Australia on a speaking mm -hmm. tour. Yep, and I'm godfather of one of their kids. So, uh, oh wow! <laughs> you know, when people take their faith seriously, if they ask you to be a godparent, you know, they think highly of you. So that's nice. Well, I, um, Matthew, can I make a point about an importance of liturgy here? Because it really is. Uh, it's almost like the. Um, <laughs> funny enough, the church's best kept secret. But it's it's the one thing. On one hand, it's the one thing we put all our eggs in one basket. In today's, um, at the moment, the church right now, um, our strategy to evangelize or our strategy to reach people, uh, we, we're sort of holding on to this last um, chance we've got. People are still turning up at Easter and Christmas. People are still turning up on Sundays for the most part, even though it's only 10%. Uh, people are still turning up for the Holy Communion and for the sacraments. And we we want to throw everything in on in the Mass, but we sometimes throw in all these different things uh, like it's the one thing we gather, so all of a sudden it's our gathering point. So it's the um, it's the certificate ceremony, it's the announcements, it's the uh, it, it's almost like uh, little skits or plays that they might do at the end of mass, or there might be a whole bunch of things. It's like this is our chance to reach people, and the numbers are still dropping. I mean, they're not coming back. And and when you look at where there's fruit, which is quite interesting, there is a strong traditional movement, and and people who have really had a, a, a love for the mass, but may fall short in, say, outreach um, evangelization programs and all that. And then there's an interesting middle ground, and I just wanted to touch on this. Um, religious orders who are, who, are, who are reviving now, 
Franciscans or, or whether it be uh, Dominicans or whatever the religious order, Benedictines as well, um, and these traditional orders, there's a revival. But liturgy, I, I just feel like it's the it's the one area we, we're focusing on scripture and we're getting great scripture um, teachers and scholars. We're getting apologetics, um, great apologists defending the church's teaching on um on all all different areas of, of the faith. We're getting great people teaching on theology of the body and doing things on marriage and family and chastity. Liturgy is almost like an area we, we I, I strongly feel uh, we, we're falling a little bit short here where we're not going through all this detail that you you guys are providing and filling in a hole here. It, it almost makes us whole. Like if we understand scripture, great, understand theology of the body, great, understand apologetics, great. But liturgy, my goodness, um, this is our our daily bread, our daily um, sustenance. This is the highest form of prayer, as you've said many times. And um, could you just tell us, I mean, how can we get liturgy back on the agenda in a way that um, is going to help take these religious orders to another level, these schools, these universities, and evangelization to a whole new level? Um, because it, where do you start? I feel like uh, we're all sort of, it's taboo to talk about liturgy. We don't touch it. People are very emotional about it. Um, people go to different extremes about it, very opinionated about it. Um, mm -hmm. and, and when does it become about me or about God and about the church? And There's so much in that. And I don't know what my question mm -hmm. is after all that, but yeah. <laughs> the idea is how do we get liturgy back on the table and, and, and people to learn um, what, what can we expect from this? Well, I think what the liturgy guy's method is, is deeply sacramental, right? Mm. So we don't just say history of liturgy was this, before Vatican II was that, after Vatican II was this. It's what is it, to go back to ontology again, what is liturgy? How does the church guard it? What are the norms? And if you live out the norms beautifully, it has a self-evidential power. So you go to an Italian restaurant and you smell these wonderful smells coming out of the kitchen. You don't go to some book about recipes. You just say, wow, that smells delicious. I want that, right? And But then if you get there and it's a beige room and the food's not that great and the waiters are rude and the kids are screaming and the music coming through the AV system is, is offensive, who would come back to that, right? <laughs> so sure, you can know it, but most people aren't going to become liturgical scholars. So I would say, make your churches lovely, make your vestments beautiful, make the stained glass delightful. Sometimes I wonder why people go to church at all, right? They get a hastily put together homily, offensive music, an ugly building, cheap vestments that are like tablecloths with a hole in the top. And then they say, oh yeah, this is supposed to move my heart toward God when it actually kind of distorts and disrupts all of your senses. And we don't have to make the liturgy anything other than itself. Let heaven be mediated through the liturgy, teach people what that is, and it will have self-evidential power. I think that's the number one thing. And then someone says, I don't know what this is, but boy, it's captivating my imagination. You know, St. Paul has the vision and he goes blind. He doesn't know who said, you know, why are you persecuting me? All he knows is something amazing happened and then he has to go figure it out. That's kind of the conversion process. Very few, few people talk themselves into the church by reading books. Some people do, but not too many. Lovely, beautiful, compelling, attractive, and then, wow, what is this? And here's where beauty leads again, right? Because beauty inspires desire to know. It's just like delicious inspires desire to eat. The truth, when it's presented beautifully, makes us say, what is that? I went in this church and I saw this golden thing what, with gems on it. What is that thing? And then they ask, and suddenly they're asking about the truth of things. And then once they've 
accepted the truth of things, they want to live the, that truth, and then they can become good. Or they might see something wonderful and say, I want to do that. Even though they don't know the truth, they become good, and then they come to know the truth of things. But see how beauty is at the beginning, delight, attractive, uh, compelling, in a world that still is visually oriented and believes in things that are, are beautiful. And so that's what I would always encourage. Sure, read the documents, do it right. But the reason you do that is so that the self-evidential, self-giving, attractive power of the liturgy will be its own evangelical um, form. Love that. Do you want to add anything, Jess? Sure. I I have so much to say about this. First and (laughs) foremost, I mean, that's everything that you're saying is what we're doing at the Liturgical Institute. We're trying to prepare people to be able to be receptive to this information. You know, we think about the sower and the seed, you know having good seed. I mean, we just heard this this week, this last weekend, you know, we want to be, we want to be good soil and receptive. I, I find a really interesting comparison to the, to the time of our world, what was happening in our world during uh, the liturgical movement, these great minds that were trying to intensify this understanding of active participation in the sacred liturgy. At that time, we had a lot of things going on. We had world wars, we had depressions and economy collapses and, we had these great minds who were just on the ball saying, okay, well, here's how we can solve this. I think we're almost at a time where we're going to see people more receptive to this again, because we're seeing global pandemics. We're seeing people leaving the church in droves. And so I think God knows the best timing for all of this. And of course we need people like Dr. McNamara who you know, is really interested in, in architecture and then suddenly understands liturgy and boom. And we need people like Dr. Scott Hahn who understands scripture and then walks into a mass and says, oh my gosh, that's the book of revelations. And then he starts to go off. And so we, we see these people that are really paving the way. The other thing that I would like to see going forward, and Matthew, you've done this already. You have these small liturgy study groups. You know, we've seen all across the world uh, mostly through our Protestant brothers and sisters, how effective Bible studies can be and how effective that can be as a tool of discipleship and evangelization. I, I feel like we are at a really great point where we're really starting to understand evangelization and discipleship, in, at least in, in the States here. Uh, my fear is that there's not a lot of handing that off into you know, a sacramental understanding of life. So you, you have somebody who has an encounter with Christ through some type of uh, event or Bible study. And then you bring them in, they start going to mass, but nobody's there to then hand them off and say, okay, now you're at mass. Here's how to offer yourself. Here's the process of deification. Here's what you're supposed to be doing at mass and, and, and putting yourself on the altar. And so we're trying at the liturgical Institute to build up programming and content to be able to employ people to be able to do that better. What, even if it's not ourselves, but the people who are in charge of adult faith formation so that they now have the knowledge and understanding of this so that they can start implementing that and and pairing it with that idea of evangelization and discipleship. Love it. And and we're going to do it again in term three, aren't we, Chabrol? We're going to, we're going to work our way through Dr. Edward Sree's a biblical walk through the mass. And we're actually going to talk, uh, turn what is a short study into a much longer study by also working our way through the general instruction of the Roman Missal. And um, that's over eight weeks. And if we're very, very lucky, there may be some guest experts involved in that particular study. We hope so. <laughs> How much uh, time are we? Um, 
How are we going for time? Are we out of time? <laughs> we got we got a, a, a time just for a, a couple more comments here. Or well, I I do have one uh, one final question. It's a bit of a burning uh, question for me. We've already established that we need to get the liturgy guys out to Australia. We need to get you here to teach your graduate programs. Absolutely. We need you here to run liturgy conferences. We need you to do talks. Uh, if we manage to make that happen, though, I have I have one desire, and I can only ask this because Chris Carstens isn't here today, but if you guys do come to Australia, can I touch the beard? Yeah, hopefully he puts some beard balm on first. You know, he has... <laughs> He has that beard balm that um, from Catholic oh, Bomb Co. It smells like chrism oil. Oh, and wow. so he walks around smelling like baptism and confirmation. It's great. Wow. Wow. Yeah, look, I get the impression that maybe he takes it off at night. So, <laughs> you know, I, yeah. I try to imagine sort of bedhead on, on the beard. And, <laughs> I don't think Chris likes to be touched, though, so be, be careful. No, he doesn't. All right, all right. So <laughs> perhaps not then. It's, it may be a little bittersweet. Um. Can I? Can I? I just wanted to know and give the the viewers a just a taste of the impact the liturgical institute's having. You started at the start of the show, Jesse, saying you got a hundred graduates. A hundred percent of them uh, are involved, uh, basically employed, um, and across the country. How have and this- and in Australia too? I might add several in Australia. Oh wow! And, and New Zealand. Little- the rector of the cathedral in uh, Sydney is a. Father Donald Richardson is the graduate of our program. Oh, fantastic. Yes. I remember. I was in the seminary myself and he, he used to come to the seminary and talk. A, we, we knew there was something a bit different about him. He knew a little bit more about the liturgy. Okay, He's good. got a sense of humor. And I love that about all of you guys. You've got a sense of humor and um, uh, filled with joy and, and but love the faith. Um, what is the impact you're seeing? So there's Father Don. There's one of them. But how are we going to? Like with the seminaries, the next generation of priests, it almost feels like we've had a whole generation of priests possibly going through sort of the bare minimum of understanding what the liturgy is and, and maybe not have understood the depths of what you're going through. And how do we, um, what are you seeing uh, at the moment? Are there more seminarians? Are there more priests now uh, referring to the liturgical institute more and more? And uh, what can anyone yeah. watching now, any priests watching now, can they uh, get involved as well? Absolutely. I mean, so not only do we have, you know, over 100 graduates are in the field of liturgy, but um, 20% of the diocese in America have liturgical institute graduates working in them. Um, And over 20 dioceses uh, with directors of office of worship that are LI graduates. And so, and then this also, you know, goes beyond our country as well uh, to Canada, Australia, Philippines, Vietnam, New Zealand, um, England, we have graduates all over the world. Uh, I think the the biggest impact that we've seen recent, more recently, is with our online certificate program. We we have uh, over uh, close to twenty seven hundred online students who are taking our our classes. Um, most most of them are taking the free course with Chris Carson's, but uh, but almost twenty seven hundred students uh, online who are yearning for this information. And from what I can gather, these aren't just, you know, priests and religious taking these courses. We have a lot of young people. Um, we, we currently have a Wyoming Catholic uh, student. She's an undergrad student, and she started our summer program as an undergrad. And so she's taking full-time bachelor's degree courses during the year. And in the summer, she's taking courses with us. So 
there's a real hunger here. And our program does a really great job, especially in the summer, to help educate the laity as well, because it's not just priests and religious. And then just to go back to what I was saying earlier, you know, our approach is top down, bottom up. My deepest rooted hope and desire for the liturgical institute is that we are hiring or we are training priests and and educators who will be formating seminarians at, from the higher level down and at the same time that we are educating and catechizing the laity so that sometime and hopefully in the near future we we get both of those people in the same parish and they kind of look around and they're like okay we're on the same page for once because oftentimes you see there is a discrepancy between maybe what the laity understands or knows about the liturgy and what the pastor wants to impart. And that, that's very frustrating. That's a divisive nature you were mentioning. Yes. And, and let's be clear, too, that studying at the Liturgical Institute and listening to the liturgy guys is something that bishops can do as well. Absolutely. You know, we have uh, a couple of bishops that signed up for our certificate program. Uh, we were we were. We made sure to send a specific invite to all the U.S. Catholic bishops here. And what's more, you know, if they're not doing it, they'll, they'll often send it to their uh, their director of office of worship. And I mean, that's a big part of our our uh, student body is that bishops are sending priests who, who they understand our program and how great our program is. They'll, they'll send their priests and then you know, that priest becomes the director of office of worship for their entire diocese because they, because they can trust uh, what we're doing at the liturgical institute. And here's a real tangible example. If anybody's interested in church architecture, Google Cathedral of the Sacred Heart in Knoxville, Tennessee. It's K-N-O-X-ville, Tennessee. 2% Catholic in that state. And there are more Catholics moving there, so they built a new cathedral. Well, the head of the office of worship was a liturgical institute graduate who wrote his master's thesis on the Catholic theology of church architecture. So when his bishop said, help me pick an architect, they picked an excellent architect. The bishop had great advice, and their cathedral is a stunningly beautiful building that now for centuries is going to form the Catholics in that area. And the reason it looks like it looks, in part, is because somebody learned from the Liturgical Institute what a church building is at the level of its ontological reality and its biblical foundation, and they built that. And that's drawing people into this church to delight in the beauty of it. And I think these things are, they're like dropping a pebble in a lake, you know, the rings kind of move out and out and out. So I would say if anybody's feeling discouraged, don't be discouraged. God's the in charge of the world, even if, even his permissive will is still his will. So when people are doing wrong things, he can, um, he can bring good out of them, especially if we as lay people and priests too, are offering the world to him. I mean, we offer ourselves, but we're stewards of the world. And so our particular path as lay people is not just to offer ourselves and our families, but to offer the world. We're in the world. Father, we give the world to you to glorify. We give the church to you. We give the liturgy to you. Please make it better. Just like Christ's you know, broken body was um, raised as a glorified body. And uh, that liturgical thinking is not just what I do on Sunday at Mass, but the whole world as an offering to the Father to be glorified. Well, and that's what unites us, absolutely. The church has, has this, let's get in touch with what the Mass actually is, what the liturgy liturgy is, what, what the church has already spelt out. We don't have to be um, <laughs> creative or, or, or go off tangents. What's been such a divisive topic um, in the past doesn't have to be if we can just get back to the basics and understanding of what the liturgy right. is. 
As it we is also don't have to reject the Second Vatican Council because if you understand it properly, and you, if you follow the podcast, you know Chris was worried that we would spend many, many podcasts going through every word of Sacrosanct Concilium and Vatican II to give it the proper understanding. And then you can say, oh, yeah, that was not some weird accident that I can reject. But if we do it right, it will be, uh, I think there really will be a new springtime that John Paul uh, spoke about. They were, in fact, wonderful episodes. And I'm, I'm very glad that you did that. Well, thanks. We like to make fun of Chris for all of his doubt. <laughs> As you can see, it's contagious. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I want, I want to thank you uh, very much uh, for joining us today. Um, please know of our prayers from all those in Perusia and, 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 the, and the, in Australia here, praying for the Liturgical Institute and all the great work you're doing. Um, keep going. Uh, don't stop. And we're going to do our bit to try promote the work you're doing down under um, and beyond. So um, please know of our prayers and, and remember us in your prayers as well. We'll do and pray for Benedictine College too. Don't forget us. Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> I, I can't thank you enough for coming on. It's been an absolute honor to talk with you. Uh, Matthew, any final words as we close with possibly a uh, glory be? Absolutely. Let's do that. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the, beginning, was in the beginning, is now, now, now and ever shall, shall be, world, world without end. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you very much, gentlemen. And uh, now that we've met all the members of the liturgy, guys, we may even risk having all three of you on next time. (laughs) God bless. Thank you once again. God bless.